Hello, hello. My name is Emma Roman, and this is episode 47 of the Missing Pillar of Health podcast. Today, I'm going to break down the ins and outs of organic versus conventionally raised meat and dairy. Welcome to the Missing Pillar of Health podcast, the show that tackles the often misunderstood and underestimated topics related to toxins and their impact on our health and well-being. I'm your host, environmental engineer, mom of two, and founder of Green at Home, Emma Roman. My mission is to help you reduce toxins in your life without fear, judgment, or shame, so you can be more informed and empowered to take action on issues that matter to your health. The research is clear that toxic chemicals found in the products we use, food we eat, water we drink, and air we breathe are contributing to the rise of chronic illness, allergies, infertility, autoimmune disease, and more. The good news is you can reduce your exposure without having to drastically change your lifestyle, and I'm here to show you how. As Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. I believe addressing toxins is a critical step towards creating healthier and happier families, communities, and ultimately a better planet. And that starts right here, right now. Let's dive into today's show. Now, looking into organic food was one of the first projects I did on my own journey to understand more about toxins and environmental health. For three or four years in university, I actually became a vegetarian because I felt that was easier and more cost-effective than trying to figure out whether organic meat was better for me and the planet and if it was worth the cost. So if you're not sure how much emphasis should go into organic meat, maybe compared to hormone-free or free-range, this episode will definitely help you get started. If you are vegetarian or vegan, this episode will not be for you, and don't come at me with different reasons why everybody should be. That's not the point of this. I don't make judgments about how you eat, and I don't want you to make judgments about how other people eat. So I'll say right off the start that the intent of this episode is not to compare the environmental impact of meat production methods. The focus is strictly on what organic means, what it doesn't mean, and how it compares to conventional livestock in terms of farming inputs like antibiotics, hormones, and a little bit of animal welfare. If you haven't listened already, I covered organic produce in episode 26. It dives into specifics around pesticides in particular, which is also applicable to the meat conversation. After all, there's some truth to the phrase, you are what you eat eats. Now, I'm in Canada, but I work with clients and have members of my community across Canada and the U.S. The requirements for organic agriculture are quite similar between the two, so I'll be assuming that they're more or less the same and jumping between the specifics in Canada and the U.S. throughout this episode. If you want the actual word-for-word criteria for wherever you live, you can look them up on the Canada Organic or USDA website. But Here's the general gist. Now, to obtain organic certification, farmers must demonstrate compliance with standards that are laid out by federal regulations. There are separate certifying bodies that complete the certification reviews on behalf of the government, and they have to be themselves accredited to do that certification. And this includes documentation as well as on-site inspections. To carry the organic certification, meat 
and dairy must be from animals raised with no hormones or antibiotics used, access to outdoors and pasture with a specified minimum amount of time each year, have access to sufficient indoor space for movement with clean and dry bedding. They need to be fed organic feed that is specific to the species. Feed supplements cannot include antibiotics, GMO-derived products, animal byproducts with the exception of fish meal, and synthetic preservatives are not permitted in any feed products. In addition, mineral supplements must not contain prohibited ingredients such as mineral oil. The U.S. standards even go so far as to say that lumber treated with arsenate or other prohibited substances may not be used for new construction that will come into direct contact with soil or livestock. I'm not sure about the Canadian standard, but the U.S. says that. And meat that is labeled as organic must be from an animal that was under continuous organic management from at least the last third of gestation. A certified organic slaughter facility must also be used for processing meat that is to be marked as organic. All right, now that was a summary. There are specific criteria that are laid out for each of these requirements and then some, but but I wanted to give you kind of an overall picture of what organic means because it goes a lot farther beyond what a lot of people think, like no pesticides and hormones and antibiotics. Now, on the topic of not using antibiotics, part of the standard also stipulates that withholding antibiotics to maintain organic designation is prohibited. So where antibiotics are required for animal survival or well-being, they should be used. Now, organic farmers may be more likely to implement strategies to avoid this need in the first place. But that being said, in the U.S., a 2017 FDA ruling called the Veterinary Feed Directive was implemented, which ended therapeutic antibiotic usage as a management tool. So before, they used to feed animals antibiotics, whether they needed it or not, just to prevent any outbreaks. In 2018, the Canadian rules also changed to similarly require a veterinary prescription to use antibiotics. And this was out of a concern because the overuse of antibiotics can lead to resistant bacteria. And this becomes a problem for both farmers, who then need to find other ways to manage outbreaks, as well as the public. So many farmers already don't treat animals any more than what's required. However, if antibiotics are required in an organic farm, then that animal needs to be isolated and it needs to then be sold as a non-organic animal. In addition, in conventional farming, there is a withdrawal period required between the last dose of antibiotics and when the animal can be sent for slaughter. And so this is an effort to reduce residual antibiotics in the finished meat product. So there's likely a spectrum of antibiotic use across different sized and managed farms. There are ways around even the veterinary feed directive, I am sure. So there may be farms that are using more antibiotics than others. The organic certified meat should have none in the finished product and potentially less use overall compared to conventional farming. So this can offer a peace of mind for those concerned about this issue because there's really no other way to tell if there is residual antibiotic in the meat at all. Another hot button issue is the use of growth hormones. Typically to increase milk production, 
and speed up lean muscle growth. On the milk front, the hormone that's permitted to be used in U.S. dairy cattle is recumbent bovine somatotropin, or RBST. It's a synthetic version of the growth hormone that cows naturally produce. And I'm going to give you a quick history lesson here because I found this pretty interesting when I was doing research for this episode. This hormone was discovered in the 1930s. Well, actually, the natural form of this hormone, BST. It was found that injecting cows with BST could increase milk production. And this was helpful in certain countries during food shortages, such as in the Second World War. At the time, BST was not being mass-produced, so it wasn't used beyond that. In the late 1970s and early 80s, scientists at Genentech in Monsanto, now Bayer, developed a genetically engineered version, RBST. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved RBST for use in 1993. At the time, Health Canada reviewed it, and in the late 90s, Health Canada reviewed the use of RBST, but did not approve it. A 2007 USDA study found that only about 17% of all American cows were receiving the artificial hormone. So it's not used across the board, but there also really isn't a way to know, just looking at the package, whether a product came from a dairy farm that uses RBST or not. Is it an actual health concern? Well, when it comes to human health, Health Canada determined that RBST posed no health risk to humans who consumed milk from cows who had been given RBST, but it had concerns about the potential health effects on the cows. A 1999 report commissioned by Health Canada found there was an increased risk in the cows that were injected with RBST of mastitis, and that risk was increased up to 25%. The increased risk of infertility was 18% and lameness by up to 50%. One of the panel members who advised Health Canada was Dr. Michael Polak, a professor of medicine at McGill University in Montreal. To quote a newspaper article he was interviewed in, he says that while there has been no scientific proof that consuming milk from RBST-treated cows is dangerous, it is impossible to rule out small, subtle effects. The benefits were considered to be close to zero, so it was felt that no risks whatsoever should be accepted. Now, Canada prohibits the use of RBST in dairy cows raised here, but not in imported products, which means U.S. dairy products that cross the border are still available. For the Canadians listening, if you would like to avoid this, you can look for the blue cow logo symbolizing Canadian dairy, the Canada Organic logo, or the USDA Organic logo to avoid this hormone. When it comes to meat production, hormone and steroid use in conventional farming are prohibited in all chickens, including egg layers, veal calves, dairy cows in Canada, turkey, bison, and pork production. So these animals contain no added hormones and steroids, regardless of whether it is labeled. Sometimes you'll see hormone-free, and if it is on any of these animals, then the, the package is supposed to say pork raised without hormones, and then you might see an asterisk, and then a footnote that says, like all pork. Certain hormones may be used to promote growth in beef cattle and maybe lamb. And there are six hormonal growth promoters approved in Canada for use in conventionally raised beef cattle. 
beta agonists are technically not hormones, but are also used as a feed additive to promote growth in animals and in some conventionally raised farms. They're also not permitted in organic farms. Hormones have been used for decades in the meat and dairy industries. Synthetic estrogens and testosterone are the most common, and they're administered via a pellet that gets implanted in a cow's ear at an early age, which then releases hormones throughout the animal's life. Risk assessments on hormonal substances used indicate that natural steroid hormones and beta agonists have negligible human health impact when they're used under good veterinary practices. The research on this, I would say, is probably lacking. (laughs) But studies have found levels of hormones in waterways that demonstrate hormone-disrupting effects in aquatic life. Growth-promoting hormones have been found in aquifers, manure, which is also often applied to crops as fertilizer, which means it impacts the wider food supply, and surface water around feedlots. I'll talk more about feedlots in a minute. A research paper in the Journal of Soil and Water Conservation looked at these effects and concluded a more complete understanding of these chemicals and cooperative work among regulatory agencies, universities, livestock owners, commodity groups, and other environmental organizations are necessary to find a suitable solution to this complex issue. In other words, when we're talking about the use of hormones, it's not just whether they impact us, which I think the jury might be out and how much ends up in the meat itself, but there's the bigger impact of what it does downstream because the hormones don't just stay in the meat. They end up in the environment. So I hope that clarifies some of the major differences between conventional and organic meat and dairy for you. Reading through the standards and requirements, it's no wonder to me that organic certified meat and dairy carries a cost premium. I really don't believe that this is just a money grab. The requirements are fairly strict, the documents are quite lengthy to wade through, and the certification itself carries a cost. But there's also a range in how organic farms operate. You can still have massive essentially factory farms that produce organic meat. And then there are smaller farms that may or may not carry official certification, but could raise animals using organic principles. I'm fortunate enough to live in farm country and have the majority of my meat and eggs coming straight from the farmer. They aren't certified organic, but they follow practices that work for me. If you can source a farmer either through a local farmer's market or possibly a delivery service, Chat with them about their practices because the organic logo can provide an increased level of assurance, but it can also jack up the cost and it isn't the only option. If you're in a grocery store and you're trying to decide between organic at twice the price over other marketing terms that you might see, like free range, grass-fed, etc., I wanted to give you a quick overview of what some of the other labeling terms actually mean so that you can make educated decisions about where you're going to spend your dollars. All right, so free run, this is typically used on eggs, and it means that the chickens can wander around the whole barn floor. And I use the term wander loosely as these barns are quite packed in large commercial farming. Now, in Canada, all chicken raised for meat are technically cage-free and therefore free run. It doesn't really mean much on the package. Free range also typically found on eggs, means that the chickens are free run, but also have access to an outdoor pasture when weather permits. Now, 
There is no legal definition in Canada, so what this pasture looks like in reality varies widely. The USDA defines it for egg-laying chickens only and requires continuous access to the outdoors during the laying cycle. But again, what this outdoors looks like, it varies. Grass-fed is a term commonly used on beef. Most, if not all, beef cattle are grass-fed. They're raised on grass or hay in the winter when they don't have access to grassy pastures. The difference typically is what happens towards the end of their life, and so this is what you want to look for, potentially, and that is grass-finished. So when beef production became industrialized, farmers realized that they could fatten up the animals faster if they quote-unquote finished them with a few months' diet of grains. This often happens in a feedlot. It's a highly concentrated operation where cows hang out over troughs of grain, just eating away. So grass-finished beef will be well-marbled and more fatty and therefore often more flavorful, and it likely offers better conditions for the cows. So that's the difference between grass-fed and grass-finished. Cage-free means pretty much what it sounds like, that the animals aren't confined to cages, but again, there's no definition as to what the alternative necessarily is. And hormone and steroid-free, just as a reminder, if you see this on poultry or pork, it's really just a marketing tactic as they aren't permitted to be used in the U.S. or Canada for those animals. Now remember, often these labels are focused on just one aspect of how the animals are raised. The organic certification takes things to a whole other level with a holistic look at animals, animal welfare, our end health, and the environmental health. But when you don't have access or means to purchase organic, it's helpful to know what these terms mean, because often they can come with their own inflated price tags, sometimes without offering much or any benefit over a cheaper alternative that doesn't have the marketing buzzwords, but are still, for example, free run or grass-fed. If you're still struggling to stomach, pun intended, the premium for organic meat and dairy, but you know you want to prioritize it, here are some tips for eating organic on a budget. Number one, eat less meat. Eating more plant-based meals can be a great way to reduce your overall grocery budget. And I will get into another reason to add more plant-based meals to your repertoire in a sec. Cooking from scratch can divert some of your budget away from takeout and fast food and allow you to spend money on more organic food. As I mentioned, you can try to find a farmer who may not be certified but meets your needs and you might be able to get food for cheaper than certified organic from a grocery store, for example. Also, meal planning can go a really long way because the average family of four ends up throwing out about $1,400 worth of food each year. And so if you can meal plan and avoid food waste, you will also be saving money, which you can use to support eating more organic. Avoiding the inner aisles of the grocery store where a lot of the convenience food sits can also help your bottom line. Reducing food waste finding things to eat based on what's in your fridge. And again, going back to the meal planning to help with that. I like to add a meal in the week or use my lunches to eat up what is left over in the fridge. And you can prioritize the dirty dozen fruits and veggies to help reduce your budget for 
spending organic on those. Again, you can listen to episode 26 for more on that. And I'll link in the show notes to a blog I wrote on the Dirty Dozen and pesticide residues. Now, before I wrap up, I will say that choosing organic meat doesn't help you avoid persistent environmental pollutants that are present in our air, water, and soil. Chemicals like pesticides, PCBs, and dioxins build up in fatty tissues, and with humans being at the top of the food chain, we can be exposed to higher concentrations. So reducing your intake of meat and dairy, particularly high-fat varieties, can help reduce your intake of those pollutants overall as well. All right, that's a wrap for today's show. Coming up as we are closing in on the 50th episode of the podcast, I can't believe it. Next week, we will be talking about letting go of what we can't control as kids head back to school. And after that, I've got an interview with psychotherapist Allison Villa about regaining connection in your relationships to have easier conversations about toxins, particularly with your partner, and a conversation with my friend and client, Andy Clark, about her journey through adrenal fatigue and various diagnoses and how addressing toxins played a role in her family's recovery. Stay tuned. And until next time, be well, everyone. Bye for now. Wait, before you go, I have a quick favor to ask. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and like what you've heard, please take a moment to hit subscribe and leave a five-star rating and a written review. You can do it right from the app. It takes just a sec and really helps me to be able to continue to share this important information with more people. Plus, you might just get a shout out on a future episode. Thanks so much and bye for now.